Council on Public Affairs for the, uh, what is it, the uh, 2nd of, of February. My name is Terry Shellington, I'm your moderator. And a couple of things I want to tell you before we jump into today's topic. Um, I'd ask you if you have cell phones to uh, put them on mute uh, and remind you that uh, the SACPA website has all these topics uh, later and including the Q&A. And uh, this show will appear on, this program will appear on Shaw Television uh, twice daily, 2 and 10 p.m. Uh, and we thank our sponsors, which includes the University of Lethbridge, which always helps us to keep our act together, and Shaw Television particularly. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll remind you too that the cost of the meal is $12, and, and you can put that in the table, and one, somebody at your table can do the counting. So uh, our topic today is around populism, and our speaker really needs very little introduction, and I'm not going to give him very much. He's a well-known academic in this city, and he's a, a great friend of the Council of Public Affairs, uh, director of Parkland Institute, as well as a sociology uh, professor, and uh, often helps us uh, dig our teeth into um, current issues. So Trevor, we really welcome you. Thank you. It's uh, wonderful to be here. Uh, let me say, first of all, this is fantastic. This crowd is fantastic. Terry, don't you agree this is just the hugest crowd that you've ever seen? It's, it's a bigger crowd. It's a bigger crowd than Chris Spearman ever gets. Uh, and, and if the lying media would just tell the truth, there's five million people watching this right now. Yeah. Okay. Enough silliness for the day. Uh, well, it's, this, uh, it's great to be back here. I've always really enjoyed uh, talking to the uh, Council on Public Affairs. Uh, th this particular topic actually is kind of like a return home for me in some sense. Uh, years ago, uh, my uh, doctoral thesis was on the uh, Reform Party of Canada, very much a party that was grounded in the ideas kind of of populism. And, uh, this is such a uh, huge topic, uh, both historically in terms of populism, but also what's going on right now. So uh, I'm going to try to tie together. I've got half an hour. <laughs> this is a topic we could be talking about for the next 48 hours. Uh, there is so much to think about here, uh, but I'm going to lead you through and hopefully connect some threads between populism, uh, neoliberal globalization, and why it's kind of led us to this point. And uh, thank you very much, Terry. And uh, the election of Donald Trump, which uh, is peculiar and, and singular, but is also connected to a whole bunch of things going on. Uh, you know, the, the Brexit vote last year uh, in England, uh, much of the discontent that you see in Europe over the last number of years, and even before Trump, of course, in the United States, going back to the Tea Party movement, which I believe I actually talked about at some point here at uh, a previous talk. So we're going to go into a number of things here and hopefully uh, tie it together in a way that is uh, reasonably coherent. So uh, let's start with uh, Trump's inauguration speech. And I pulled out a couple of lines from here because this is uh, pretty emblematic of what uh, populism is all about. Uh, particularly some of the, the phraseology. So January 20th, 2017 will be remembered as the day the people become the rulers of the nation again, the people. 
We are not merely transferring power from one administration to another or from one party to another, but we are transferring power from Washington, D.C., those hated people in Washington, and giving it back to you, the American people. And in some ways, if you think about this last part here, uh, you know, populism is almost kind of built into the DNA of the United States. We the people, right? It's this idea of this, this great mass as though uh, uh, you can actually identify uh, the people. It's a pretty amorphous term. But what Donald Trump has done is, is tied into this kind of uh, symbolic notion of uh, a group that is in some sense opposed to another. And that's very much the heart of populism. So uh, having uh, written, talked about populism a lot over the years, I've, I've come up with a kind of uh, complex but I hope succinct definition of populism at the same time. A mass political movement mobilized around symbols and traditions congruent with the popular political culture which expresses a group sense of threat from a powerful elite group or individual who the mass, the people, again, view as illegitimate. So uh, it's, it's always us versus them. It's always the people versus some elite. Um, and the elite in the last number of years has quite often been uh, termed as uh, around other kinds of wording such as special interests. So it tends to be you know, environmentalist politicians are always in there, mainstream politicians. Uh, sometimes intellectuals, um, various kinds of other kinds of social movements, particularly from the right, has portrayed uh, special interests as being somehow illegitimate. Uh, the people is a pretty amorphous term, and that's what makes it actually really powerful and useful, because everybody thinks then that they are part of the people until that moment when the leadership turns against them and says, well, you actually are not really one of the people. You're one of the groups that we've decided to go after here. And that's the, the nasty, dark side of populism. One other thing that I think is worthwhile <laughs> thinking about here is its connection to charisma, because certain populist movements in the past have also attached themselves very much to individual leadership. So the individual leader becomes uh, kind of the, the symbolic quality. It's like the, uh, the effigy that every puts their, everybody puts their energy into. This person embodies uh, the entire group. Uh, and unfortunately, again, we've seen some nasty examples of this in the, in the past. The idea of the, uh, the charismatic individual themselves, of course, is, is a kind of interesting one. Uh, and I've said here that it's very much in the eye of the beholder. So uh, one person's uh, charismatic individual is to somebody else just a screaming demagogue uh, and uh, who seems to talk absolute nonsense. And... Uh, we have, again, a really good example down in the United States. Uh, some people seem to fall on, uh, follow every word of Donald Trump as though it's some great truth, uh, something really penetrating that he's speaking about, and a lot of times it's like totally incoherent uh, to a lot of people. So, uh, but it is true that a lot of populist movements have in the past been led by what we would think of as charismatic individuals. I uh, should say here then that, uh, of course, we can think of all kinds of examples of populist movements in the past. Some have had charismatic leaders, some have not. 
Canada has a long history of populist uh, movements, and Alberta itself very much. Of course, social credit, led by uh, William Aberhart, who some would view as, as a kind of charismatic individual. Uh, but Western Canada itself, uh, you know, the CCF, forerunner of the NDP, uh, led by Tommy Douglas, uh, certainly uh, whether Douglas was particularly viewed as charismatic, but he was certainly viewed as with a great deal of respect. President Obama, uh, one could say, is kind of a fairly charismatic individual. Uh, and now we have Donald Trump. And the key thing here is if you think about all these populist movements of the past, is that they don't necessarily fit very well on any traditional kind of left-right spectrum. Uh, you have populist movements of the left, populist movements on the right, and if you think about the Obama Democrats, a very kind of centrist mainstream party. There are then all kinds of variations on uh, populism that people have uh, written about. Historically in the United States, of course, the, the original populist movement actually was a bunch of agrarians back in the late 1890s, that was where the term was actually coined by an American journalist of the time. Um, and so populism for the longest time in the United States was viewed as kind of historically a, an agrarian movement. Uh, in more recent years going on from about the 1970s uh, with uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, Reagan himself kind of tapped into a kind of anti-Washington, anti-establishment populism uh, that made him, again, very popular. Uh, in other parts of the world, populism is viewed somewhat more askance. Uh, in Latin South America and many parts of Europe, actually, uh, populism is associated with what is termed clientelism. Uh, the idea being here that the leaders of who are in government then buy off people, uh, and so they kind of create their own kind of mass movement out there by buying them off uh, through various kinds of subsidies, work, or whatever. And so it's a patron-client relationship with the state. In North America, it tends to be populist movements are not viewed as connected to the state, so they don't have that relationship with the governing party they always are in opposition. They're running against the establishment in North America, whereas uh, the, the thing in Latin and South American parts of Europe, they're viewed as actually too closely connected to the government. Um, <clears throat> in Canada, we actually have a, uh, a much more kind of class-based notion of populism than you might find in the United States. The United States doesn't tend to be to think about uh, issues in terms of uh, class. Uh, it's, you know, race is important, region is important, uh, regional cultures are important. Class is not something that is very uh, familiar in the American political dialogue. But in Canada, uh, the left-right spectrum has been much more uh, historically ingrained. So what you find in the left populist movements over time is they tend to think in terms of capitalism on the left, uh, particularly corporate capitalism. Uh, this is the, the enemy of the people that needs to be uh, dealt with, needs to be reined in. And uh, from the left perspective, government is not necessarily the enemy. Government is, in fact, simply a vehicle for being able to control corporate interests. Uh, on the right, by contrast, uh, right populism in Canada has tend to be 
forged along kind of regional lines. So for example, uh, social credit in Alberta uh, found its enemy in Ottawa. Uh, so there's kind of a regional aspect to that and uh, very much focused not on capitalism per se, but on the banks. And so that's why you had uh, the idea of social credit went after the banks, created their own bank effectively in the ATB, uh, and uh, felt that they could offer a script as a means of actually controlling the money supply. But they weren't opposed to capitalism, they just wanted it to work for the people as they viewed it. Again, the key thing here is to realize that most people, most voters, uh, in a political system don't tend to be terribly ideological. Uh, I've been struck over the years every time I've done talks like this or been on a talk show and taken calls uh, from people who will, uh, will say something like, that's a left-wing perspective or that's a right-wing perspective or that's liberal or that's socialist or that's conservative. And then when they start to actually talk about it, you realize they actually don't understand in a textbook sense what those things actually stand for. So my experience with a lot of people is almost everybody is a little bit conservative, a little bit liberal, a little bit socialist. Uh, and they just don't actually identify it that way. The thing about populism is it always comes along at a moment of crisis. And at that moment of crisis, people are looking for an alternative. They're looking for a solution. And so they don't think in ideological terms. They latch on to something because the leader, the movement, the party, the newcomer on the block is offering them something that is uh, a new solution because the mainstream alternatives no longer are meeting that need. Uh, recently, uh, a uh, gentleman by the name of Patrick Weber uh, wrote an uh, interesting article where he was talking about all the variations on uh, populism around the world right now. And what he argued was, in fact, that there's commonalities across the political spectrum of, uh, of ideas that are appealing to a lot of people. And again, traditionally, they might have said, well, they belong to this party or this party, left, right, whatever. But these are commonalities that Weber says are uh, among many of these, these groups. And you'll see here, they just don't fit very well into the old left-right spectrum. Protectionism in trade and a rejection or of or deep skepticism of freer trade. Trump clearly appeals to this. Uh, and over the years, uh, people on the left have quite often argued that, for example, many of the free trade agreements are uh, not in people's best interests. Uh, I would argue, in fact, in some ways, I think the left actually has overstated and not specified clearly enough its neoliberal globalization that has not worked very well for people, and I'm gonna elaborate on that a little bit later. So it's not trade per se, but the idea then that protectionism is the only way to go if you reject trade has, is very much a, a widespread appeal. Foreign policy isolationism and aversion to liberal interventionism. Uh, again, you can see here in Trump kind of the pulling pack back from uh, all kinds of American engagements abroad. This comes after uh, several decades of uh, very stupid wars that the United States is engaged in, uh, stupid and illegal wars. And so the appeal to a lot of people, left, right, and center, is pretty real there. 
but again, it's, it's the same sense in many other countries as well. You see it uh, with Brexit. Immigrants not regarded as part of the national community, either excluded or seen as a separate entity. Again, Donald Trump has certainly uh, appealed this way, but uh, many of the uh, movements in Europe uh, of the right particularly have appealed the same way. Rejection of or at least deep skepticism toward the European Union project. The European Union is right now, uh, you know, because of its many self-inflicted wounds uh, in, in some danger of uh, breaking apart. And a stronger welfare state, often with benefits based on nativist criteria. So you would think that traditionally a lot of right-wing movements actually, have, and certainly corporate interests, might be opposed to the welfare state. Uh, but if you think back to many of the people who supported the Tea Party movement in the United States, one of their big fears about Obamacare was they were going to lose all kinds of programs that, uh, you know, the, they thought the government was going to take away programs that are actually government-mandated programs. It was a very peculiar argument. Um, and so they want actually to hold on to many of those things, uh, but so they're not right-wing, let's get rid of government intervention altogether, but what they want to do quite often is it's only the people who get these, not those others those others who are coming in here, and it's based quite often on a kind of ethnic, racial, and very much nativist uh, criteria. A few examples here of uh, parties and movements in recent years that have appealed in some sense to the notion of the people. Uh, as many of you uh, will know, over the last number of years, I've talked at times about the uh, severe crisis of unemployment that is rising in parts of Europe. It hasn't quite hit us to the same extent here, but particularly among young people in uh, Europe, uh, the southern countries, Spain, Italy, Greece, uh, where you have ridiculous levels of unemployment that uh, mainstream parties just are not, haven't done very much with, you know? So you've got a wasted generation of people. Uh, in many of those countries, you have 28% uh, unemployment, but for people under 25, you're talking about anywhere from uh, 50 to 60 percent unemployment that has been, uh, and so we talk about the, the uh, precariat, you know, the people who are very tangentially uh, connected with the, uh, the labor markets. Uh, this is actually the crisis that nobody in the mainstream parties actually want to talk about. Uh, nobody wants to talk about the crisis of jobs and unemployment that is going to hit us really, really quickly in the next 10 years. Uh, I've been trying to talk about it for the last two years here, and yet nobody in the mainstream seems to want to deal with it. And so populist movements of the right particularly have really latched onto this. We can talk about why the left hasn't successfully done it, but it's a reality. On the right, you have some very scary populist movements. Very None of the movements on the left are uh, strongly, strongly leftist, <laughs> put it that way. The ones on the right are extremely scary in a lot of places. Uh, the rise of uh, neo-fascist, neo-Nazi movements in Europe is a very real thing. Uh, they have not got to the majority status yet, but a lot of them are polling in the range of 10, 15, 20 percent. Uh, and, of course, we have elections coming in uh, France and other parts of Europe in the next while where uh, extreme right parties are likely to do very well. 
So why the recent upsurge? Well, as I said, uh, endless pointless wars, uh, terrorism and the refugee crisis, all of these are uh, very much connected things. Uh, you know, from a, uh, the 9-11 attacks of 2001, I've, I've actually started writing an article the other day that I think Osama bin Laden in the end may end up being the, uh, the most accomplished political strategist in the history of the world because he understood that if I just cause what is essentially a police action which had been dealt with, I can have the United States destroy itself. And uh, the United States has done a great job since 2001 of going about uh, in ways that just antagonize and uh, have started to eat away at the internal uh, makeup of the United mm -hmm. States. Automation and the growing jobs and the economic crisis. I just talked about this. I think there's a, a real crisis of unemployment that is about to uh, strike uh, the entire world, but particularly the West. Uh, new social media and the decline of authoritative sources. You see this in the kind of post-fact universe we uh, live in where you can just make up anything. Uh, and I, as a sociologist, have a particular dislike, I have to say, for postmodernism, or at least the turn it's taken, <laughs> where, you know, everything is relative and you can make up anything and everybody's reality is just something that you want to come up with. Uh, this actually goes against the entire Enlightenment project and is a real danger, I think, to uh, intellectuals and to uh, the structure of universities. Finally, in the U.S. specifically, because Donald Trump is the, uh, the topic of the day, seemingly every day, um, the discrediting of the Republicans is a result of the Iraq War, uh, and uh, the Republican Party looks like it has won because Donald Trump won the election, but in fact it's now the Trump Party. The uh, Republican Party was coming apart at the seams last summer. It is a terrible party. It is a bunch of holdovers, uh, ne'er-do-wells, do-nothings who, if they weren't elected, probably would not have a career at all. Uh, and the danger is here that they now have, um, because they owe Donald Trump for their re-election, now they're totally beholden to him. So forget about the idea that there are checks and balances in the American political system. They are not going to do anything to damage Donald Trump. The only thing that might get them thinking is if in the polls he keeps dropping, 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 because in two years there will be uh, midterm elections. But until that time, the Republican Party will do absolutely nothing to stop Donald Trump from doing anything he wants. Uh, the Democrats. Uh, somebody from Wall Street should have gone to jail after the Great Recession. Nobody went to jail, and that's one of the uh, causes of the dislike of President Obama. Uh, President Obama spoke really well, but for all the rhetoric, he failed in a lot of ways. He's also opened the doors for internationally for some very dangerous things because uh, by going to drone attacks everywhere, he set the stage for a lot of enemies to come over the next 20 years as children grow up remembering their villages being blown apart. Uh, they also, and I mentioned before, liberal interventionism. Uh, the uh, it decide, decision that we were going to remake the whole world in the image of the United States by invading uh, Libya and then the bizarrely haphazard way it's actually handled Syria, uh, feeding some uh, opponents of Assad and then backing off from that. It has, the 
Democrats and Republicans have made a mess of the world internationally. And so both parties actually have uh, lost a lot of respect among the American people. They, I think a lot of American people, they didn't like Donald Trump, they just disliked Hillary Clinton a lot more. And a lot of them would have liked to have said, where's a third party? Where is a legitimate party that actually will deal with the messes that these two political parties have done? Uh, the final thing here, I said the huge, <laughs> I hate to use the word huge any longer because I can't use it in my head without thinking of Donald Trump. But the huge thing is actually uh, uh, that is, has led this is the collapse of the neoliberal order over the last 35 years. If you think about the world, uh, how it got fashioned after about 1980 with uh, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, uh, it was this whole idea of open borders. As uh, one person said, this was the, uh, the end of history. Everything had been decided from here on in. It was going to be liberal free trade, individualism, markets, uber alles. Uh, that's come to an end really abruptly. And so the world has flipped in another direction. Uh, I love to uh, talk at various talks I've given about Carl Planier. Many of you are aware of his works. His, uh, his book, The Great Transformation, written at the end of the Second World War, has come back. Is one of the most widely read books, perhaps now being surpassed by George Orwell's 1984. Uh, it's, uh, it's deservedly uh, being rediscovered and reread because in a nutshell, what Polanyi said was, Unregulated markets, the way neoliberalism pursued it over the last 35 years, can only end up in political and social chaos. And Polanyi argued that, in fact, the two world wars of the 20th century and the intervening Great Depression was a direct cause of, uh, ca directly caused by experiments in unregulated markets that had set communities against each other. And in the course of that, uh, people began in the uh, mid part of the, or early part of the 20th century looking for alternatives. Communism was one variation, but the other was fascism uh, throughout Europe, which also had a lot of appeal in North America. So, many of you have actually seen the, uh, some of these details over the last uh, while. Uh, go to the very quickly to the bottom here, the uh, recent report from Oxfam that the wealthiest eight people in the world now possess the wealth of the bottom 50%. Uh, this is not just a matter of possessing wealth, this is a matter of possessing political power. Uh, and this is unsustainable, as I've said, I don't know how many times over about 20 years here. Uh, and unless uh, the world actually gets hold of wealth, performing for the people, then you're going to find demigods standing up and uh, looking for niche markets out there. They're going to go after various kinds of groups based on ethnicity, race, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, whereas in fact the real problem is a, a larger problem in the economic system. Uh, this is a, very quickly here, this was a trust barometer. I just came across this recently. This is a, uh, uh, a survey done of countries around the world. Very interesting point here. Uh, it's a, uh, how much trust do people have in institutions? And what you see is that a severe decline in trust in institutions around the world. Uh, but the big difference is between elites, 
Okay, a lot of people who have done reasonably well out of uh, neoliberal globalization. I would include here a lot of academics, actually, who love to travel to various conferences around the world, and they get sort of their piece of the pie. But there are people who have actually done reasonably well. And if you look, two examples here. Look at the Brexit vote. Who voted to stay in the European Union? Everybody who is connected with the City of London. Look at where the voting was. Everybody outside, basically, of the City of London, with a few exceptions up north in Scotland, said, we want out. And so that was a direct example of a disconnect between the elites centered with the financial industries of London who said, we love what's going on, and everybody else said, what did globalization give us? Second point, look at the voting patterns in the United States. Who voted for the Democrats, wanted things to keep going well, the way they thought it was going well? East Coast, West Coast, New York, LA. Middle America hates those places. Middle America doesn't see what it actually got out of there, out of globalization. Wisconsin, Michigan, those places, they went for Trump because they said, what did we get out of this? So, uh, I'm going to really try to wrap it, go through this. Robert Reich had a wonderful thing. You can look it up. Trump's seven techniques to control the media. This is where it starts to get really scary, and there's shades here of the 1930s. Uh, where what happens is then with a kind of demagogue like this is don't listen to anybody else. I am the one who will tell you the truth. So all truth is filtered through that charismatic demagogue, uh, and you can't believe or have a check against anything else that they say. Uh, that is really scary, uh, and so we need to be aware of that. Uh, where might this actually lead? Uh, well, uh, there is actually a chance here of uh, major wars, but there's also, I think that's probably unlikely, but I think there will be a lot of wars. Uh, and there could be kind of small little battles, but then we've seen that for the last 40, 50 years too, in fact, maybe for the history of humankind. There is a chance of a major war by accident, just because uh, Donald Trump is so erratic, uh, so unpredictable, and uh, he's a bully. And uh, at some point, someone's gonna stand up to him and I'm not sure that Donald Trump has the wherewithal to actually back down from it because his identity is so focused on uh, that he's, he's a winner, right? Uh, wise people might know how far they can go before they step back. I'm not sure he can step back. Uh, so that's, that's a danger. Uh, I do think the right-wing parties are going to continue to actually be in a surgence uh, unless people take seriously what is going on and uh, find a, a legitimate alternative that other people can buy into. Uh, and that means uh, growing authoritarianism and the threat of uh, a bridging of civil rights. Uh, the markets the last little while, there's been a, a bit of a uh, drop in the markets the last little while, but actually I think there's probably at least uh, many of the markets will find a kind of a bump here, um, particularly in the energy markets. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of uh, money flowing into the United States. And so what you're going to do is create bubbles again, back to 
what you're going to see is a large bubble economy begin to grow in the United States, which means the United States is going to run up huge debts over the next few years. Uh, that, uh, and that's going to, at some point, also the bubble will burst again, and it'll collapse. But Donald Trump may be long gone by that point. Uh, but he is setting up the stage for, I think, a, uh, again, a pretty severe disaster down the road. So, uh, having given you a really cheery talk here, <laughs> thanks. <laughs>